Well, have you ever known someone, maybe it was a boss or a parent or a friend, that you just didn't feel comfortable going to them with a difficult situation? I bet most of us have had that situation where we get ourselves into trouble, and instead of just reaching out and confessing that we need help, we try to fix it ourselves, or we try to ignore it, and in so doing, the problem only gets worse. For me these days, usually that happens when I'm trying to fix something at my house, and I think I can watch a YouTube video and fix a toilet or something like that, and then everything just goes horribly wrong when I should have just admitted that I didn't know what I was doing in the first place and called somebody who did. But I can recall, story time, I can recall being in about the seventh grade. I was on the AV squad. Yeah, you can laugh. AV and technical things and wrapping cables, they've been with me for a very, very long time. So I was on the AV squad, obviously the coolest job in all of high school. I went to a very large public high school, and one of my jobs was to pick up and deliver, now, now i got to explain this, what's called a film projector. And so a film projector had these two giant reels on it, and they had actual film, and you fed it through this machine, and you watched a movie. And it was a glorious day when you were a student, and you saw a guy like me roll a film projector into a classroom, because that meant you got to watch a movie instead of listening to your teacher teach. So in this one particular day, I had gone, and I retrieved a film projector that someone had already used in class, and I was going to bring it back to where we stored all the film projectors, It was the change of classes, and so there was lots of people in the hallway. And as I was rolling this thing down the hallway so confidently, I hit a bump. And that projector, the whole cart tipped, and that projector just projected. It flew right off the cart and crashed to the ground. There may have been a few pieces that broke off it and things, and of course everybody saw that and laughed at me one more time. Maybe my status went down a couple more pegs in the social calendar, but I was obviously embarrassed and and completely flustered by this, so I picked up the projector as quickly as I could. I put it back on the cart, and my plan was put it back in the closet, turn off the light, close the door, and completely ignore the problem. As you can tell, that was a terrible plan. The teacher who was in charge of the AV squad, Mr. Phelan, soon figured out that there had been something that had gone wrong, and he found the broken projector, and he called me immediately. I don't know what I was thinking about. And I remember he said to me as he grabbed me by the elbow and and said, why didn't you just tell me? Did you think I wouldn't find it? Why didn't you just tell me? I don't know. I was scared. I was a kid. I was nervous. And Many times, though, I think when we're in trial, if you're like me, maybe we try to go it alone, or maybe we just try to ignore it, and maybe not even come to God at those moments and and say, God, I need help. I don't know what to do. I messed up, or uh, I don't know what to do in this situation. It's not easy to admit our weaknesses. It's not easy to admit our failures. It's not easy to admit that we need God's help. We need His intervention. Maybe that's because we don't have a proper perception of God. We wonder how he will react if we go to him, or, or maybe we just feel that it makes us look like we're weak or small. Or, but today, it's my hope and my prayer that Jesus will demonstrate through Matthew 15 that our God, church, is a God of compassion, and that he responds in compassion to all who come to him, 
by faith. Let's, let's jump back into Matthew 15. Last week, just to kind of bring us up to speed, as we uh, started back in Matthew from our Advent series, we saw Jesus tangling with the Pharisees and the scribes who were sent from headquarters to see what Jesus was talking about and to test him. The Pharisees, the scribes, the religious leaders were growing irritated with Jesus, running around, teaching with all authority, healing everyone, claiming to be God, claiming to be the Messiah. And Jesus, worse still, was calling them out, correcting their misinterpretation of the law, calling them hypocrites. The Pharisees and the scribes focusing all of their efforts on the external behavior, the keeping of their own laws over and above the law of God, such as ceremonial hand-washing over and over again, and ignoring clear commands that God has given us to honor our mother and father. We said last week that godliness cannot come from external rule following just by itself. Godliness comes from the heart, a new heart, a heart that has been transformed by Jesus. So this week, Jesus moving on and engaging with more hands-on ministry of helping and healing in a place that's very unexpected. Look at verse 21 again of Matthew 15. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And, and we just need to pause here because this is actually really, really important. So it's, it was his pattern... Right? We've seen this once or twice before. When things heated up in Galilee, Galilee was Jesus' main hub, his headquarters of activity. But when things heated up in Galilee, he would retreat somewhere else. This time, he retreats pretty far away. And if you're a map person, this is your day. So we have a map. You'll see that Galilee, Genesaret, it was where he was previously. And if you look at the map up to the left, right on the coast of the Mediterranean, you have the cities of Tyre and Sidon. And you also note that those are part of Syria, which means that it's not Jewish territory. It's Gentile territory. Remember, Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, and he comes in fulfillment of the Jewish scriptures as their Messiah. But no one, I mean, well, everyone needs to realize that it's not just for the Jews. I don't think anyone expected that, but it's, it's for the whole world, not right away. And Jesus came first to the Jews as their Messiah. You may remember also Jesus referring to Tyre and Sidon in chapter 11 as a bit of a rebuke to the Jewish people when he was in their midst and they completely didn't believe him. They just completely ignored him. And Jesus said, if I had done these works in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented immediately. He was saying, the, the Jewish people don't seem to see that I'm the Messiah, but the Gentiles, they would see. And so Jesus then takes off from the region of Galilee, heads out to the Gentile territory of Tyre and Sidon. Before they were those names, they were part of Phoenicia. And, and that was before that, they were part of Canaan. And that should ring a bell. Canaan should ring a bell. If you know your Old Testament, you remember that God used Israel to judge Canaan for their evil. He executed his holy war against them. And having Israel invade and conquer the territory that he now gave to them as their promised land. It was God's judgment against Canaan for their wickedness and for their rejection of God. But you might also recall 
that Israel failed to do it completely. So all around Israel, you still have Canaanites. All around Israel, you still have Gentile territory that is sometimes hostile to the message of God. Matthew intentionally uses this rather archaic term in referring to this woman, we'll see in a moment, as a Canaanite woman to refer to the background of the woman that Jesus meets as he enters Gentile territory. Let's look at verse 22 and get some more context here. Behold, a Canaanite woman, there's our term, from that region, came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David, for my daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. So, so this Canaanite woman, again, meaning a Gentile, a pagan, comes to Jesus in utter desperation. She calls out to Jesus, have mercy on me, literally in the Greek, Kyrie eleison. She literally calls him Lord, which does not mean she necessarily submits to him as Lord and Savior, but Lord is also a generic term of authority and respect. She calls him also, though further, the son of David. This is way more specific. So either she knows exactly who he is as the Messiah, which becomes obvious, or maybe even she already believes. She tells Jesus that her daughter is severely demon-possessed and begs him to help. Demonic activity, think about, think about this. God in the flesh, now walking around this territory, you better believe that demonic activity spiked as they were reacting to God himself realizing that he has come to destroy the works of the devil. So demonic activity was heightened, ramped up with Jesus walking around as God in the flesh. But demons still exist today. There's a whole spiritual world that we believe in, and demons are part of that. We need to remember that demons cannot possess believers because we are possessed and indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and greater is he that is in us than is in the world. They can harass us, but they are dogs on leashes. Unbelievers, though, Ephesians tells us, follow the prince of the air, the devil, and in sin and rebellion against God until the transforming power of the gospel gives them new life and freedom from that, until the gospel sets them free. So Jesus, knee-deep in enemy territory, arouses the attention of the demonic world, and a desperate mom comes out and begs him to help her. Let's see how she responds. Look at verse 23. But he did not, or see how Jesus responds rather, but he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him saying, send her away for she is crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, but she came and knelt down before him saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. And she said, yes, Lord, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. And Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. So backing up and picking this apart, Jesus responds by not responding. Doesn't say a word. Ignores her. Kind of weird. Totally weird. But she doesn't give up. She keeps crying out over and over again. So much so that she's driving everyone around them crazy with her constant begging. The disciples go to Jesus and are like, boss, can you do something? I mean, I can't even hear myself think. 
All she's doing is crying out and crying out. And Jesus answers them, you know the deal. I'm not here for the Gentiles. I'm here first for the Jews. I'm here for the lost sheep of Israel. Now, again, it's important to keep the whole balance of Scripture. We know that the gospel is global. We know all the way from Genesis 12 and Genesis 15, where God makes a covenant with then Abram and says that all the world will be blessed through him, meaning that the Messiah will come through the nation of Israel and then all the world will be blessed. We know even at the end of the story in Revelation that people from around every tribe, tongue, and nation will be gathered around the throne singing praises to Jesus. And so we know that the whole world is included in this offer of salvation, that no one by their race or ethnicity is excluded. But with that, we look at the mission of the gospel of Jesus. And in this part, he was dealing with the Jewish people. He was coming to them as their Messiah, as the fulfillment of the entire Old Testament. And they were supposed to recognize him. But unfortunately, John tells us he came to his own people and his own people rejected him. But at this time, Jesus says, it's not my time for the Gentiles yet. It's my time for the Jews. This woman doesn't take no for an answer. She continues to be persistent. She goes to Jesus and now falls on her knees and begs him, Lord, please help me. Has anyone been there? Maybe somebody's been there recently, right? I have. Where we're just, I just, you've got to help me. I don't have any other option except for you to help me. Jesus responds to her this time and curiously says, It is not right to take the bread from the table for the children and feed it to the dogs. Which now, in light of what he said to the disciples a moment ago, we can see that he's saying it's just not time. It's time for Israel to eat at the table. It's not time for the Gentiles to eat at the table yet. But this sounds offensive. I mean, calling her a dog... I mean, Jews commonly referred to Gentiles at that time period as dogs, but it's probably not as offensive as it seems. The, The word here is probably not the word for your common mangy street mutt wandering around for scraps, but more of a house dog, more for someone of wealth that would have a dog. See, further proof in the Bible that owning a dog is biblical, You don't ever read anybody in the Bible owning a cat. I'm just throwing that out there. However, they didn't worship dogs the way that we worship dogs today. The woman, again, will not be deterred. Moms, can you feel this? Can you feel this? Your child is in need and you are not taking no for an answer. Full mama bear mode is happening right here. She literally argues with Jesus, the Son of God. It's a strong argument, too. One translator even puts it stronger than the ESV says it here. And Jesus basically tells her, I can't do what you're asking. And the mom says, yes, you can. Yes, you can do what I'm asking. Even the house dogs get the crumbs that fall from the table, Jesus. That's all I want is a crumb. That's all I need is just a crumb. That's enough. Jesus, amazed by her faith. In an amazing act of grace, grants her request. The woman's daughter is healed instantly. Mark tells us in Mark 7, the parallel account, that she is not with 
the mother, she's at home. Look at the power and the authority of Jesus over evil. No fancy incantations, no rebuking the enemy, no ceremony. He just heals her instantly with a word, with a thought. Look at the compassion of Jesus, opening the door of compassion to someone who's still on the outside. The point, Jesus responds to humble faith. Jesus responds to humble faith. Jesus, in his compassion, moved to action, seeing a desperate mother begging for his help and her daughter receiving the help. Even though it's not the plan at the moment, the compassion of Jesus goes outside the normal expectations. Jesus sees her humble faith and responds. And a few things in application here. First of all, this is all of us. We all need to get to that point where we fall down on our knees and we realize that we can do nothing to save ourselves. That apart from the saving work of Jesus Christ outside of us, we are hopeless. We don't know if this woman came to saving faith. I think she did. That's just speculation. But all of us need to have that moment where we realize that we are sinners separated from God in need of a Savior and fall down before Jesus Christ, the Messiah, and say, Lord, have mercy on me. Save me. Help me do something. We've all got to get to that point. But second, what we are seeing here is no less than the start of the inclusion of the Gentiles in the plan of salvation. And we should rejoice in that. Because now many of us at Highlands Bible Church come from Jewish descent. We are all from Gentile descent. And so we should, re we should rejoice that we were the wild olive branch that was grafted into the tree. That we now can participate we can receive salvation through faith, that there is no ethnicity, there is no background, there is no nothing that is excluded from faith and from salvation. If you've ever felt less than, if you've ever felt marginalized, this passage reminds us that God, the God of the universe, will move heaven and earth to respond to humble faith. God welcomes everyone who comes to him in humble faith, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter where you come from. And so should Highlands Bible Church. You know, when uh, Pastor Ryan Boyce came, I don't know what, eight years ago, nine years ago now to Green Pond Bible Chapel when, when my family and I were still attending Green Pond. The first book he preached through was Mark, and I remember him preaching this, this parallel count in Mark, and Mark calls her a Syrophoenician woman, I guess from the old Phoenician Empire and the, uh, the Syria, the country of Syria all around her, the point being that she was a Gentile, and so therefore there should have been animosity between the two. She was less than. She was considered an outsider. And Pastor Ryan challenged us that we should have a sign on the front door of the church that said, Syrophoenicians welcome. And that always stuck with me. And that's the truth. We should have a sign that says, Syrophoenicians welcome. That should say, sinners welcome. That should say, anyone is welcome. Now, we have to be careful with that because that doesn't mean that we verify or that we consent to how someone's necessarily living their life in rebellion against God. Welcoming someone doesn't mean that we have to approve of the way they're living their lives. We have to 
welcome all in love, but it doesn't mean we change the truth of God's word. And that's, that's a ground, church, that we have to stand on. We have to stand on that in this ever-shifting culture that, yes, we welcome anyone here to hear the saving message of the gospel. And that is the truth, but we can't change the truth of God's word. So we all have to get to this point. We all see here, hopefully in this passage, the inclusion of the Gentiles now, the, the global expansion of the gospel to all peoples who come to him in faith. But third, this also should teach us about the persistence of prayer. We go to God and we keep going to God. Like Jacob, who refused to let God go until he was blessed. Like that mom or dad who continues to beg God to save their children. Like any of us, when we go through trials and adversity, we go to God, we fall down before Him, we admit our failures, our faults, our need for Him, and we beg Him for help, and we continue to in humble faith, knowing full well that He is the only one who can truly help us, because God is in all things and through all things, and in Him all things hold together. Jesus, the visible manifestation of God in the flesh on the earth. And he goes on to prove it with some more miracles. Look at verse 29. So Jesus went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee. And when he went up on the mountain, he sat down there. And great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And they put them at his feet, and he healed them. So that the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking and the crippled healthy and the lame walking and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. And so again, another geographic note here because we see that verse 29 says that Jesus went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee, which you might think, oh, okay, he went back to headquarters. He went back to the region of Galilee, which probably, almost definitely, is not where he is. Mark, one of the clearest arguments telling us he's not back in the region of Galilee is the parallel account in Mark in verse 31, which tells us plainly, then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee, watch this, in the region of the Decapolis. And so, yes, bonus map day, map nerds rejoice. So we have another map here that will show us then that the Decapolis is at the bottom right of your screen also Gentile territory. So what this is saying is Jesus made a big loop basically around the Sea of Galilee and ended up walking on the Sea of Galilee, but on the eastern shore in the region of the Decapolis. So point being, he's still in Gentile territory. He's not in Jewish territory. He's continuing this mission in Gentile territory. And as soon as he gets into this region in the Decapolis, People bring him the sick, the lame, the blind, the paralyzed, those that couldn't speak, and many others. And what did Jesus do? He healed them. That's what our text says. The text tells us that the crowd wondered. And again, I, I, I don't know why ESV went with wondered there. This word is maybe better, we're astonished. They weren't wondering, like, why is he here? They were amazed. They were astonished at the authority of Jesus, at the way that he healed people. Our text says they looked at the results of what he did, that, that people who were crippled were walking, that those who couldn't speak were speaking, that the blind could see, and they were amazed. They were astonished in wonder. 
And I have to think a lot of that is because Jesus, with his band of Jewish disciples, were in Gentile territory, and he was touching them, and he was healing them. He was showing them compassion, and they were amazed. There's a bunch of Jewish guys here caring for us, having compassion on us, doing amazing things. I thought Jews hated Gentiles, but no, they wondered in amazement at the compassion of Jesus. The text tells us that seeing the healings, in verse 31, the end, he says, they glorified the God of Israel. More proof that he is not in Jewish territory because they wouldn't say the God of Israel if they're in Israel, most likely. These people are saying, wow, they, they, they know that Jesus is Jewish. And they know that he did this through the power of God. And so who do they glorify? The God of Israel, the God of where he has come from. Here's the point. Jesus works where it doesn't seem likely. Jesus works where it doesn't seem likely. Those times when we're out of options, like like the Canaanite woman, like the sick and the lame at the feet of Jesus, desperate, where you maybe don't think that Jesus will show up, but he does. Like planning Highlands Bible Church. If Jesus and his spirit did not establish us, we would not be here. Church planning is a very terrifying experience because you're like, well, here we go. We're just going to plant a church, and if God doesn't bless it, we're going to fall on our face. But God blessed it, and God continues to bless it. Like when we're literally on the floor from sickness or from anxiety or from just being overwhelmed by life, God shows up with a ray of hope where, where, where it seems so dark and hopeless, God shows up with a ray of light and hope and peace. Like when we're at our wits, wits end with kids and parenting, or, or when we're a student and we're just completely overwhelmed with the, the course load and everything that's going on, when, we, when our marriage continues to feel dead, just overwhelmed with life, whatever the situation is, and Jesus breaks through with transformation and works in a place that you never expected him to work, that's where Jesus works. I think Spurgeon said that Jesus does his best work in the dark. That we understand those times, that's when we need Jesus the most. Jesus is at work where it doesn't seem like he is. One theologian also reminds us that God at any time is doing billions and billions of things. Every once in a while we get to see a few of them. Sometimes we think that just because we don't see God working we understand that to mean he's not working. And I'll talk to people as they come to me for pastoral counseling and they say, I wonder if God's working. And I'll say, hold on, wait, stop. God is working. God is always working. God's working where we don't expect him to work. God's always doing billions of things. And every once in a while in his grace, we get to see a few of them. But even if we don't, that doesn't mean that he's not working. God is always working and working where it doesn't seem likely. If you know me, I, I've read prayers before from this Puritan prayer book, The Valley of Vision. The title comes from Isaiah, where Israel was so desperate after the exile, after the destruction of their city, all of that, 
They're so desperate, they were literally in a valley. And I don't know if you've ever been in a valley, but one of the curious things about being in a valley is you tend to have really tremendous clarity. You tend to be able to see things that you didn't really see when everything was hunky-dory. But when you're on your face before God and wondering why the rug just got pulled out from under you, there's a clarity in that. And that's why Isaiah and then the Puritan authors of this book called it the Valley of Vision, because we see things in the vision. Let me read from the very first prayer of this book, aptly titled The Valley of Vision. Listen to these paradoxes here. Lord, high and holy, meek and lowly, thou hast brought me to the valley of vision, where I live in the depths, but I see thee in the heights. Hemmed in by mountains of sin, I behold thy glory. Let me learn by paradox that the way down is the way up, that to be low is to be high, that the broken heart is the healed heart, that the contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit, that the repenting soul is the victorious soul, that to have nothing is to possess all, that to bear the cross is to wear the crown that to give is to receive, that the valley is the place of vision. Lord, in the daytime, stars can be seen from the deepest wells, and the deeper the wells, the brighter thy stars shine. Let me find thy light in my darkness, thy life, your life in my death, your joy in my sorrow, your grace in my sin, thy riches in my poverty, thy glory in my valley. Jesus works where it doesn't seem likely. And if you are watching this today from a valley, remember that. Just look around. There is tremendous vision. And remember that God is always at work and he works where it doesn't seem likely, just like in another Gentile territory, healing throngs of people who come to him. This is the paradox of the Christian life, one of many. God is not only above us, he is with us. He is next to us. He is there with us. Jesus is always at work and we see that Next, look at verse 32 as we have this final little section of chapter 15. Then Jesus called to his disciples or called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have had nothing to eat. And I am unwilling to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. And the disciples said to him, where are we going to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? And Jesus said to them, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven and a few small fish. And directing the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish. And having given thanks, he brought, broke them and gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up seven baskets full of the broken pieces left over. Those who ate were 4,000 men, besides women and children. And after sending away the crowds, he got into the boat and went into the region of Magadan. Sound familiar? Yeah, it was just, uh, if your Bible is laid out like mine, you can look across the page to the left and see the feeding of the 5,000, which has led many commentators to mistakenly say that this is the same account. It is not the same account. It is a different account. And Mark, again, in his account, and actually in uh, 
later on, uh, next week, we will see that Jesus refers to them as two different accounts. There's the feeding of the 5,000, there's the feeding of the 4,000. They're two accounts. And it's really going to be important in a minute. And remember also that these are just 5,000 and 4,000. We realize it's way more than those amounts. That even Matthew himself says there were 4,000 men, but there's also women and children. And so who knows what we're talking about? Eight, 10,000 or more? Jesus calls his disciples to him and basically explains why he is working in Gentile territory. Compassion. He's still in Gentile territory. And these people that have, have just flocked to Jesus for healing now have been with them three days. And they're without food. And Jesus has compassion on them. He says, I'm not going to drive them away to tell them to go stop at McDonald's on the way home to get something to eat. This is the Middle Eastern heat. They'll, they'll faint. They'll drop. Again, owning. Remember when we were in the, the feeding of the 5,000? It's our responsibility. You give them something to eat. It's not their fault. We give them something to eat. The disciples who, who just a chapter ago saw him feed thousands and thousands of people dramatically with a miracle. Again, ask the same question. Okay, do you want to feed all these people? These thousands and thousands of people. Where in the world are we going to get the food to feed thousands and thousands of people? One of the commentators I read said, we should never be surprised at our faithlessness because we see the disciples here and their faithlessness. What do you mean, where am I? What? Jesus definitely was rubbing his forehead at that point. What do you mean, where am I going to... Mm. How much food do you have? He says, they say, seven loaves and a, a, a few fish. <laughs> Just this moment, right? He must have been like waiting for it to click. Do, do I have to tell you what I'm going to do? Like, do you not remember this? Bring them to me. Bring me all the food. Have all the people sit down. He blesses the food. He, he gives thanks. He breaks the bread and, and separates it all and distributes it to the disciples who distribute it to the people. All the people ate and were satisfied. Thousands and thousands and thousands of them, again, miraculously fed with a lunch, a meager lunch of bread and fish, a very, very common lunch in the Greco-Roman first century age. And we realize once again that Jesus has done a miracle, and we can't take away the miracles here. We're surrounded by them in this passage, and I won't belabor the point because we've seen, we're now, we're now finishing up chapter 15 of Matthew. We've seen plenty of miracles already, but in case you're jumping into us midstream, yes, we believe in miracles. You can't, you can't not believe in miracles. Yes, I know miracles are scientifically impossible, and I agree. Miracles are scientifically impossible unless you're dealing with Jesus Christ, the God of creation, and then he can do whatever he wants. And this was what he did. He did another miracle. But Jesus is saying something deeper here. And especially if we combine this with the context, again, geographically of where he is right now. He's still knee deep in Gentile territory. He's healing demon-possessed children. He's healing the sick. He's feeding the hungry. It doesn't matter who they are, where they come from. It doesn't matter what ethnicity they are or what cultural or religious norms were at play in that time. Jesus was doing something new here, something complete. 
And I think that's why they had seven baskets left over. And those of us who were at midweek and saw all the numerology and the symbolism in Revelation, we remember seven, of course, throughout the Bible. It's a number of completeness. I believe that was intentional. I believe that Jesus is saying here that this is, this is he's alluding to the fact that the gospel is now going to be completely, perfectly for the whole earth, no matter where you came from, not just the Jews. But what drives Jesus? And Jesus tells us, right in verse 32, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd. Compassion on the Gentiles that we're supposed to hate. Compassion on the needy people who can't help themselves. Compassion on the hungry. I have compassion. Compassion on those, think about this, who came to him. They flocked to Jesus. They came to him. Jesus didn't have to go around and post flyers to telephone poles and get on Facebook and say, listen, I'm going to do a Gentile country tour. Make sure you get everybody out there. No, they knew who was in their midst and they flocked to Jesus. They came to him and Jesus responded with compassion. And so for our big idea today, I just simply want to say this. Jesus has compassion on all who come to him by faith. Jesus has compassion on all who come to him by faith. Jesus, seeking to get away from Galilee and just, again, probably to pray and have some silence and solitude in the mountain and Gentile territory away from the Pharisees and the scribes, Jesus runs into, again, who? More people who need help. Desperate moms who have demon-possessed daughters. And church, Jesus is still working today in desperate parenting situations where we feel we're at the end of our ropes and we don't know what to do. Desperate people who are sick, Jesus heals. So sick that they have to be carried to the feet of Jesus. And church, be reminded, Jesus is still working today in the midst of Omicron and pneumonia and cancer and Lyme disease and maybe some of those at the same time. He's still healing. He's still sustaining He has perfect compassion on them all, and it doesn't matter that they're Gentiles. It doesn't matter that the timing of the plan wasn't right at this point. It's time now. Salvation is here. Jesus has compassion on all who come to him by faith. And so a couple main applications that shake out of this. First, if you have not come to Jesus by faith, what are you waiting for? The Word of God shows us clearly that it doesn't matter who you are, doesn't matter where you came from, doesn't matter what you have done, Jesus welcomes and has compassion on everyone who comes to Him by faith. So if you have not done that today, I call you to repentance and to do that today, to call in the saving name of Jesus who will respond not with a finger, just saying, but with a compassionate heart. But second, church, Christians, hear me. When we are in trial, when we are in adversity, when we are faced with our failures, resist the temptation to go it alone. Resist the temptation to cut God out of that. Resist the temptation to say, well, here's my colossal failure. Here's my colossal weakness. You know what? I'm just going to shove that into the closet. I'm going to turn off the light. I'm going to close the door and maybe no one will ever know about it. Don't do that. Go to God. 
go to Jesus and he will respond in compassion. When we try to solve things on our own, when we try to white-knuckle it, we express our self-dependence. We are not self-dependent. We are Christ-dependent. And sometimes it takes driving us to the floor or our knees or sickness or whatever to show us and remind us of that. Church, make those times short where we are trying to be self-dependent. Run to Jesus and he will respond compassionately. Look at what our text has shown us today. Our God is compassionate and welcomes all who come to him in humble faith. Go to him but go to him knowing who he is. We've got to understand God rightly. And I was searching for a verse to kind of summarize this, and I found many verses, and I, I had a couple psalms that I was trying to choose which ones, but I put one in your bulletin, and it's Psalm 103.8, and, and I really love the way that CSB translates this. It says, The Lord is compassionate and gracious. He is slow to anger and abounding in faithful love. And so maybe if you are not sure how God would react, whether you come to Him for the first time in faith, or whether you are one of His children and you need to come to Him in complete dependence, and you need to throw something at His feet, and you need Him to work in the place where you don't think He will, remember, church, who God is. Remember that He is compassionate, and He is gracious. He is slow to anger, and He is abounding in faithful love. And Jesus, the perfect picture of our compassionate God. To all those who come to him in faith, faith for the first time to save, faith for the millionth time to sustain. Do you ever think like, oh man, I can't go to God again and tell him I need him? <laughs> That's the whole point. Of course we have to. It's what he wants. It reminds me of Psalm 16 or 116 that says, what am I going to give to God for everything that he's given me? I'm going to raise my cup again and I'm going to ask him to fill it knowing that he is the one who sustains us, go to the compassionate God in faith. To all those who come to him in faith, faith for the first time to save or faith for the millionth time to sustain. Church, this is our God. Well, let's take a moment to pray together to think about these things and I hope that you will continue to read this passage, to soak in it, to think about this. Um, wanted to also ask you to pray for me I will be leaving bright and early. Well, it won't be bright when I leave, but I will be leaving in the middle of the night, probably tomorrow, to head down to Louisville, uh, to the campus of Southern Seminary to continue uh, work on my doctorate, and I'll be there all next week. I'll have a, a class with Dr. Allison all next week, and so looking forward to that. Um, Josh Barlow will be with you on Sunday. I'll be here too next Sunday, but we're going to give Josh the privilege of, of cracking into uh, chapter 16 next week. But I would appreciate your prayers. Those are long days and, of course, uh, long travel uh, going down there. So I would appreciate prayer for, for safety, for travel, and, and, and endurance and perseverance as some very long and intense classes uh, are sure to be, but fulfilling. And so I'm thankful for the opportunity to do that. But let's go to our compassionate God as we close our time together. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for what it tells us about you. And we pray that we would have the balance that we need to think of you as you truly are. That you are a God that is compassionate and gracious, that you are slow to anger, that you are abounding in faithful love. But we also have to remember that you are holy. And that we need to come to you and confess our sin 
For you are faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so, Lord, if there are people listening that have not come to God initially through Jesus Christ, we pray that you would compel them to do so, that you would save them. You would grant them the faith and the repentance that they need to understand that you are compassionate. But Lord, for all of us, the church, believers, your children, we pray that you will strengthen our hearts to not wait, to not try and hide our failures, to not try to ignore you or push you out, but to go to you, Lord, to run to you. Like like these people that were laid down in, in the feet of Jesus, like the mother who just refused to take no for an answer to help her daughter, like the hungry that were before him and Jesus refused to send them away hungry. Lord, we know you are a compassionate God. Would you please impress that truth upon our souls? May we keep short accounts with you. May we continue to depend on you. And we are so thankful that you are not just a God that is over all and sovereignly over every molecule of your universe, but that you are with us. You are imminent. You are near us. You know every tear we cry. You know every sleepless night. We know that you strengthen us and pray that we would go to you quickly, our God of compassion. We pray all of this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.